Life is a blank canvas and you paint your own story. I'm Lee Rogers and welcome to The Blank Canvas. I'm going to be chatting with the trailblazers, artists, thought leaders, athletes, the entrepreneurs and creators, incredible individuals who inspire us to live large. Many people and businesses have been smashed over the last few years. There's millions of people out there trying to reinvent themselves to survive this brave new world. Also, as a population, we're living longer. There's more and more mature age people looking for work and needing to be productive for longer. This week's guest is business coach, author, and ageism activist, Hunter Leonard. Hunter's written seven books, including two Amazon bestsellers, Generation Experience and The Experience Equation. In a common sense manner, he lays out his vision to end ageism and gives practical steps everyone can follow to reinvent themselves, whether starting a new business, getting a new job, or helping to overcome age discrimination. It's a mile-high goal, but Hunter is a man on a mission for the mature age worker. And let's face it, none of us are getting any younger. This is coming down the line for us all. As founder and CEO of Silver and Wise, Hunter delivers business coaching to small and large businesses and government bodies. He surveyed more than 10,000 business owners in the course of developing his coaching strategies, and he's delivered over 700 seminars and presentations and contributed to over $2 billion in sales growth for more than 500 clients. In fact, I'm one of Hunter's success stories. Over a coffee a few years ago, I shared a career crisis and that I needed to reinvent myself. I left with a copy of his book, Generation Experience. Not long after, I had the idea to create a podcast. And here we are, one year later, and the blank canvas has launched me into a new space and opened new work and all kinds of opportunities along with it. Please welcome to the blank canvas, Hunter Leonard. Good morning, Hunter. How are you? <laughs> I'm very well. Mate, um, it was interesting as I was preparing for this today, I realised that you and I had a coffee in Sydney a couple of years ago as I was confronting a major downturn, let's say, in my business, a bit of a career crossroads. I'd been basically a freelance director for 30 years and the work was drying up and I'm thinking, okay, I really need to um, reinvent myself here. We had a coffee in Paddington and um, we had a great chat. You gave me a bunch of ideas and not long after, I actually came up with the idea for this podcast and, you know, launched into it once COVID hit. So thanks, mate. Oh, you're most welcome, buddy. It's um, always a pleasure to help a friend, but it's also a pleasure to see such a beautiful creation that you've, you've made as well because it's, it, it's such a great topic. You know, you can talk to anyone about changes in their life and see that most people have had a chance to create a blank canvas or start with a blank canvas and create something new at some stage in their life, haven't they? You're absolutely right. And I think, you know, with what's transpired over the last year or two, there's a hell of a lot of people facing a career change at this time. People that have been, you know, in a job, employed, full-time job for many, many years is suddenly going, wow, okay, I need several part-time jobs or... I'm suddenly freelance or I'm suddenly, you know, running my own business and maybe I've got a tech skill, but I don't know how to run a business. So really there's so many new challenges that people are being faced with. And I was just, you know, last week pondering this and I thought, okay, who's a great guest I could have on to talk about career change, starting your own business, 
all of those things. And I remembered the book you gave me when we met two years ago, which was, you've written about seven of them. I think, was it Generation Experience? Yeah, that was probably the one. Yeah, I took that away and started reading it. And what I loved about it was that it was really practical. Yeah, there's theory in there, but there was a lot of practical steps and exercises you could do. I didn't do them for the whole book, but I started doing them on the first couple of chapters and that's all I needed. It got me rolling. And yeah, I went from there. So tell me, I think you wrote your first book just several years ago and and you've written seven and they're not like tiny little 20 page web books. They're books, they're printed, they're published and you've got a couple of Amazon bestsellers. So tell us, how did you adapt to being an author, I guess? Yeah, well, it's actually interesting because the first time somebody mentioned it to me, I had this shock horror moment. I was doing a series of marketing seminars for National Australia Bank in their business division, and I was traveling all over Australia. So we were doing capital cities, and then we're out in the country regions, and we were, it was around the time of the GFC, which was the last major crisis we sort of faced in the economy. The global financial crisis. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we were doing 17 seminars. So it was basically do a seminar, hop on a plane, fly to the next location, do a seminar, breakfast, hop on a plane, fly to the next location. And I The guy that was running NAB Business at the time was doing the intros to all of these seminars. So one morning, I think probably quarter past six in the morning as we're sitting down at the breakfast table prepping to get ready for this next event, he said to me, he said, look, I've been listening to your presentation and I've heard it a few times now. And he said, I really think you should put it in a book. And I was just like, oh, God, no, that's (laughs) I'm not a writer. He said, no, no. He said, I really like it. Is that what you just said? He said, I really like it's practical. All the business owners are coming up to us after the breakfast and saying, that's really awesome. How can we get that information? Because we want to put practice into our business. And so after that shock horror moment, I went away and probably a couple of seminars later, I was starting to sort of warm to this idea. Maybe I could write down this information because I do like sharing tips with people. That's what I do in my business. We work with business owners. We give them tips on marketing and give them tips on strategy. And anyway, just as I'd sort of warmed to the idea, the two breakfasts later, he said to me, look, if you write the book, I'll write a forward and a testimonial on it for you. And I thought, <laughs> it's not going to get any better than that, the head of NAB business to write a testimonial for my book. So a little bit of the imposter syndrome, thinking that I could turn myself into an author. But I went away and I just started writing. And it was really just writing as I speak the first book. And it, it wasn't easy, I've got to say. It was, um, you know, thirty or 40,000 words in a business book is, is a lot of words. But I got through the first one and I learned what the hats were to be an author and I tried to stop myself being an editor at the same time. You know, you're writing and you're going, oh, that sounds like crap. I don't Stop that, you know. So you just be an author. And so I actually ended up writing a kind of a job description for myself as an author as well as a business owner. So it's a different hat. When you put on the hat of an author, it's, it's a different thing that you're trying to achieve than when you're running a business. So, you know, trying to share that idea with somebody else and put it down in words in a way that they can then take it and use it themselves. Yeah, you really have to have the intention for people to use something, don't you? When you're writing something, you sort of have that choice of like, okay, I could use this word and that word and make myself sound really smart and make it sound esoteric or really important and this and that. Or I could just use this word and that word that people actually know the meaning of that one and they duplicate the information more easily and and be able to apply it. So you you constantly have that choice, don't you? Yeah, exactly. And for me, it's not about actually selling a book. In fact, often I'll, whilst I've had bestsellers, I like actually often give the book to people because the point of writing it was actually to allow someone to take that information and go and apply it in their own business so that they could be more successful because I'm really passionate about seeing people not just buy a book or attend a course or 
pay me for some coaching. I actually want them to be successful in whatever they choose to do. And I think that's carried on then through as I've got, I think I've got better and better as an author. As I write each book, I feel like it's a better book, which is nice um, because you learn more about researching a book. You learn more about how to structure it. You learn more about how to write the words and get them across to people. And, and I'm a big fan of the idea of it being practical and pass honorable, if you like. I don't give people half the secret in the book and then say, hey, you got to pay me a whole lot of money to get the other half of it. Because I just, <laughs> I detest that approach to running a business. I'd rather just give all the ideas away. And then if they choose to use them, it's fantastic. Yeah, that's very cool. So something else you touch on in detail in the book, and I know it's a personal mission of yours, is tackling the issue of ageism and how to keep an ageing population productive, whether you're calling it reinventing yourself or what have you. I think the population, not just in Australia, but in you know most countries around the world is an ageing population that's living longer and most countries are having less kids, certainly in the Western world, I think. And um, we need to keep people productive. I mean, people are they're sort of generally at their happiest and healthiest when they're productive and, and working. So how do we keep people healthy, happy and productive? The other thing I was shocked about, actually, where you said, you know, a mature population, I think it was like over the age of 45, you're considered mature age. Is that right? And I'm like, holy shit, I'm, I'm fully mature. <laughs> So, yeah. So it's a really interesting issue, and I know you're an expert in this space. Can you tell us about it? And I mean, I love some of the stats that you told me before, and um, tell us about your mission. Yeah, so look, the mission is to contribute to an end to ageism. I don't think I've got all of the resource and power myself to end it all on my own, you know, just by <laughs> passing a sign of the cross across it. But um, look, it is an issue. If I could start with the broad issue, the broad issue is we're living in a world where people are living longer and they're also healthier and they also have a longer period of time post work. In other words, Years ago, the life expectancy might have been 75 and the retirement age was 65. So that's 10 years of retirement. So you could, you know, genuinely work for most of your life. You could put you know, some funds aside and then you could probably fund your own retirement for 10 years until you dropped off the perch. Um, yeah. But most of us are living into our late 80s and perhaps even early 90s. And soon enough, that life expectancy will probably be close to 100 years. So if you think about that retirement at 65 and you know, dropping off the perch at 100, that's a long, long time post-work. It's a long time to fund your lifestyle. And you know, even if you've got a modest lifestyle, it still costs money to live. You've got to buy stuff and you've got to go places and you've got to pay for your electricity and gas and all these other things. And so we're living in a world where we're using an old system of saying, well, 65 or 67 is the retirement age when people used to only live a few years past that. Yeah. This has been worrying governments for a long time, you know, way back to Peter Costello and John Howard, who are the ones that first really raised this whole issue of we're living longer, we need to fund this. So the government feels like they don't have enough money to pay people pensions for a long period of time, which means it's on us to sort of fund our own post-work retirement. But also a lot of people want to work longer because they're living so long, they're fit and healthy. I mean, I've got a good friend of mine, he's early 70s, and he rides a bike to work every day, and he outpaces me. You know, he's just very, very, very fit for a man in his early 70s. Yeah. But it, again, me saying that, I go, well, hang on a second, why am I saying that? Well, because there's a lot of very, very fit 60s and 70-year-olds. But really, the big issue we've got, and the one you pointed out, is that there's a lot of companies now that don't want to employ people over the age of 50. So 
we've got another gap between 50 and 65 or 66 or 67, which is when the government is saying you can retire and access your super and companies not wanting to employ people over the age of 50. So if you think of that, even at $100,000 a year, that's a $1.7 million gap in the productivity of an individual just on an economic basis. We also know if people are not working, they don't feel as well. They're not as happy because they're not being productive. People are productive or happy. If they're doing something, they're contributing, if they feel like they've got value, if they feel like people care about them, if they feel like there's some interest from yeah. people in what they can do. And, you know, I think we've had this conversation, mate. You go from having some status, you know, you're a, a wise person who's got 15 or 20 years experience in whatever you do, whether it's mowing lawns or counting money or making films like you do. Um, and then at some point, somebody says, hang on a second, despite all that experience and wisdom, we're not going to give you the gig now because you're old or you're a dinosaur you're a dinosaur or you don't have <laughs> enough energy or um maybe you won't be able to keep up or do you really understand the technology and blah 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 blah, blah. yeah uh, all of which are what we call stereotypes it's when you use a generalization to judge an individual person and for me the stats are horrifying you know over a half of australians now report that they've had some kind of ageism in their mature age they take twice as long to get a job. We've just seen the World Health Organization launch a global campaign to end ageism. And you don't get a health organization launching a campaign like that and investing money if they're not worried about it. Because if they weren't worried about it, there wouldn't be any attention on that issue. So it's a mission of mine to sort of help people one at a time by teaching them how to run a business or teaching them how to plan for a future of work that might involve having five or ten clients as opposed to one job because if I can do that one at a time then for that person the ageism is abolished because it no longer affects them as an individual so yeah. that's what I do <laughs> mate thanks for the overview and I've heard much of that before but I really wanted to share that with the broader audience because it's a big issue it's a big subject and we hear daily we're hearing a lot about other important issues you know sexism bullying you know blah 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 but we really don't hear a lot about this and it's an issue that it's going to affect every one of us at a certain time yeah i mean it, the stats are incredible just that thought you're right of how much longer people are generally living and um where are the dollars going to come from how are you going to fund it yeah, I mean, I've been just kind of, I guess, recently over the last few years through a, a similar thing myself, and it is, it's, um, it's a fascinating phenomena where, you know, sort of one minute it's like you're getting every job you're bidding on and you're hot and whatever, and then the next minute you're not getting them and you're thinking, gee, actually, I'm really at the top of my game. I'm better at what I'm doing than ever before, and the strike rate on jobs is just getting worse and worse, and so you start introverting and going... Oh, is it this? Is it this? Is it this? And most of them are wrong. Um, more often than not, they're kind of going, you know what? He's been around a while, and yeah, you know, blah, blah, blah. but it, it is a fascinating phenomenon where you're seeing people who actually probably have the most to offer at any point they do in their life, where they have both experience and still are healthy and enthusiastic and all the rest of it, and they're not being utilised. So it's important to utilise these people. Yeah, for a number of reasons. You're absolutely right, and and. I guess that brings us back to the broad issue is to say if we have a society that's getting older, then we're just going to have more mature workers. So we've just got to get over ourselves on that point and say, you know, that's it. We have a population that's more mature. So let's work out how we can ensure that people, you know, some people, maybe they get to 55 or 60 and they've done very well in their business and they don't want to work. Well, that's fine. That's yeah. totally okay. 
But if someone is in their 50s and 60s and either wants to work or needs to from an economic perspective, then we just have to find a way as a society to make sure that they can be utilised, that they can find something that they can do and something they have a value. And I, I don't for a minute believe that if a 55-year-old can't code the back end of a website or can't, uh, you know, there's, there's a skill that they don't have, that, that's focusing on what they can't do. There's plenty of people that can do that. So let's focus on what they can do. And there's so much research out there. Now, I'm not an expert in the research side of it, but I pull the stats and I say, how can I use that to help a mature age individual, you know, on a one-on-one basis? But there's so many stats that say that mature age people are more productive. They're more loyal at work. They're better at soft skills. In other words, managing people and communication and leadership and all these other sorts of things. And they want to work. So what are we doing to sort of put in place this artificial barrier in front of them to say, well, hang on a sec, just because you were born in the 60s or in the 70s, (laughs) we're not going to give you a job. It's just a crazy, crazy, crazy situation. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So give us an example. I mean, there's a heap of people right now that have lost their job over the last year. So they come to you and they go, Hunter, you know, I'm stumped. I've had a job for 30 years. I've worked hard, but I haven't had to worry about, you know, where the next paycheck was going to come from. What do I do? Without going into the tiny details, what's your sort of overview as to how you help a person like that? Yeah, well, the first thing I do is I sort of, we do a bit of deprogramming to say, hang on a second, you actually have some value. So let's not introvert on the fact that you don't, because if we map out everything you've done in your life, whether it's been working in a business or mowing lawns or making violins or, you know, whatever, playing music, then there's an amount of experience and wisdom and what we term sort of value that you have to bring to someone. So often we'll start with just that idea of, okay, let's just lock down what are the things you know and what are the things you can do? What do you have to offer? Not, not yep. what you don't have to offer because that, <laughs> it's a dangerous road. None of us is absolutely perfect. None of us can do everything. So you just say, well, okay, what can you do? But also I often have conversations about what do you want to do? You know, you've worked as an employee for 30 years. Which bits gave you the most joy? You know, what, what lights you up as a person? Because often the, the silver lining is it's an opportunity to create as you say in your podcast name, from a blank canvas. You've got a blank canvas on which you can put all that experience and wisdom. And now it's a case of finding the other side of the equation, which is who needs that. And in every market, there's a, somebody supplying and there's somebody buying. And so we talk about that concept of almost talking to the person about them being their own business, even if they don't want to be a business owner. It's just to say, you have some value. Let's go and research who needs that value. And let's work out how we can connect those two things together. And that might lead them down the path of finding another job. It might be a different job, might be the same job, but they go at it with a renewed understanding of what they bring to the equation. Or it might be that they become more of a freelance or project-based person. You, you know this sort of industry very well because that's making adverts and, and movies is all project, isn't it? You start, you make it, you finish, it gets released that's that's right you know yeah um so you're very familiar with that but a lot of businesses or a lot of people are not familiar with the idea of doing a project as opposed to getting a job and just keeping it for five or ten years the idea of being paid a few thousand dollars to work for three months to do one thing and then move on to the next thing or to work with four or five different people at the same time a day of week it's a foreign language for a lot of mature age people because if they've been employees they've been used to this idea of one job at a time building a career or moving from one company to another in the same sort of field or whatever. So we talk a bit about that. And then, of course, the third road is, okay, well, 
you got freelance, you've got employment, or, or you could start a business and you could turn this skill and passion you have into providing a service to someone as a formal business. And you might start employing some people and other people that do what you do, and you might then offer that service to the market. So that's generally what we do. And I do spend a lot of time trying to sort of, you know, beef them up again and say, hang on a second, <laughs> let's work with what you've got. Let's not worry what you don't have because all of us have got things we can't do, you know. Yeah, yeah. That that sounds great. Exactly. Focus on the things you can do and instead of the other, it's a sort of dwindling spiral, isn't it? That, the other approach. Mate, that makes a lot of sense. Now, tell me, I mean, you're interesting because you're a bit of a science geek. You've got a kind of a science brain on you, but you have marketing nows as well. And then I guess, as you talked about earlier, you wrote it into a book, but I think you did a science degree, didn't you? How did you wind up from you know that world into becoming a marketing guru? Yeah, talk about blank canvases. <laughs> um, <laughs> when I was growing up, I had two choices. I either wanted to be a chef and I decided that working at night and all the long hours in a hot kitchen was not for me, or I wanted to be a ranger. So I actually wanted to spend my time wandering around the bush, you know, doing studies on plants. And so I did a botany oh, degree wow. and a land management degree. Um, wow. And then, and then found out that you could virtually earn no money being a ranger. So at the time I, I thought, well, what can I do? And I was looking in the paper for a job and I found a job that where they wanted somebody with a science degree, but it was a sales role. And I think at the time the pay compared to a ranger was like 50% higher and they gave you a car. And I thought, hey, this sounds like a good idea. I'll go and do that. So I ended up as a sales representative in a pharmaceutical industry, calling on doctors and talking about blood pressure and, and all sorts of things. Because I had a science degree, I understood how to research and all that sort of thing. So I could translate that and talk to doctors about how to fix a, an eye condition or blood pressure or whatever else. So, right. um, and then I got a promotion into a, a marketing role and it was like finding your second calling, if you know what I mean. I, when I first went in there, I just went, wow, this is so cool. We get to, you know, photography and create brochures and we're doing videos and ads. And, and I was just like, I was hooked. I was hooked. And so they really trained me. We talk about this idea of investing in people lifelong and we're talking about mature age people and a lot of companies won't invest in mature people and this company that I worked for were very heavily into investing in their people and training them and so they really like I almost did a double marketing degree in internal training because we're off to this university and that university and then overseas to be trained on certain types of marketing and you know naturally then as I went through my career transitioned to, to me starting my own business I had an opportunity to start my own business that was a bit of a blank canvas moment of myself. <laughs> I was talking with a mate and he said, oh, I need somebody that can do blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, you need, you need this, this and this. And I wrote it down for him and he went away and he came back two weeks later and he said, I can't find anyone that can do that. Will you do it? And I was like, well, if I was going to do that, I'd have to have this, this and this. And so he literally got a napkin off the table in this cafe and he wrote down what I said and he signed the bottom of it and handed it to me. And that was our first contract <laughs> so, <laughs> on a napkin. So yeah, and then you know you run your business for a while, and that's when it transitioned into this this second business, which we now have, which is helping mature age people. Because I just was horrified by the stats that people of my own age and my own generation were being sort of overlooked or benched or sidelined or put out to pasture or whatever term you want to use. Um, and I thought I can do something about this, so it became the mission. Wow, Mate, that's fantastic. So. Tell me on the, the second book, is it the experience equation? Or yep, yep. Is that it? Okay, great. <laughs> so um, tell me about that and what you go into in that book that you didn't in the first book. 
Uh, this is more for the person that's not really sure whether they want to start a business. So they're in that transition phase, uh, much like when we sat down and had the coffee, they're kind of not really sure what is next. For the book, I interviewed about 300 people. So I sat down with them basically over coffee or on the phone for about 45 minutes to an hour of 300 people. So I got it. This is the scientist in me, right? <laughs> I have to find out what's the truth as opposed to what's an, an opinion. I don't like to just use assumptions. I like to find out what is actually going on with these people and what do they need. And what I found was about 90% of them didn't actually have a plan for the future. So they had some ideas, they had some thoughts, but they also had some concerns and they were worried about certain things because they were feeling insecure as a result of the ageism and being kicked out of their job or made redundant and not being able to find another one. So the book is really just all about how do you actually write a plan for the future for yourself? And it's taking all of the areas where those people mentioned the things they were worried about was themselves, you know, their skills, their health, their family, the groups that they're part of, their passions in life, the stuff they own, you know, their house, their car, their golf clubs, their whatever, you know, these are the things people talked about. So we actually created a, a methodology, if you like, or a, a way of just taking them through all of those parts of their life and saying, well, let's examine each part of your life and let's just see what sparks you, you know, and, and as you talk to people and you go through these, you, you see these light bulb moments, you go and they get the aha and they get a glint in their eye and you go, they're going to be okay because they find something that they go, I, I can now chase this. I'm not going to withdraw from the world because somebody told me I have no value. I'm now going to chase this new goal or this new dream that I've worked out for myself using some stuff that Hunter gave me. <laughs> no, that's fantastic, mate. Wow. And so how have you scaled? I know when you look at businesses that can be scaled and ones that can't, the businesses that are doing so well in the, this last year or two of the pandemic are the ones that can scale easily. Um, ones that have relied on, you know, asked to be there in person or put on events or do keynote speaking, you know, they've suffered it, obviously. So how does the scaling factor in and how do you advise people on that? Yeah, so the way we're scaling the business is I'm teaching other people to do what I do. So I've got five people now who've been trained in our approach yep. to coaching. Uh, and then I see my job really is to get out there and talk about it and say to people, we're here to help. And then these guys and, and gals that are all going to be mature age, by the way, because I want to support that age group. And there's so many people with so many skills that it only takes just a little bit of information just to then put them on the track. And then they become, they kind of buy into our mission as well. So everyone that's come on board as advisors with our group, they're all really passionate about this idea that there's mature age people like themselves that they can help and they, they can give back based on their experience in running businesses as well. So they're all really highly experienced. They've got a lot of marketing or they've run businesses or they've had a lot of financial planning background or they've done stuff where they understand how to run a business and I'm just teaching them so they can go out and, and teach others. So our goal is eventually to have 20, 30, 40 of these people around Australia that can then coach other mature age people on how to plan their future or run their own business. Um, so yeah, and then we work with government and organisations to sort of find ways that we can find a whole bunch of people that need help. <laughs> okay, gotcha. And so that business, is that silver and wise, that part of the business? That's right. Yeah, exactly. Okay, okay, gotcha. But I kind of really see my role as, a, as an advocate. You know, I'm, I come at it from an independent point of view. I'm not connected to government. I'm not connected to organisations. I, I don't really have a, an axe to grind on it. I'm just saying this is the truth. We have an issue. 
let's try and solve it. I don't have to be the one that solves it all, but at least somebody can take this part and run off and go and do that bit. And as, as it happens, there's more and more people getting interested in it and there's other people coming at it from different angles and saying, well, I can help teachers or I can help tradies or I can, you know, so people who've got a passion, they can go in and solve a little bit of the problem. And I think that's actually the only way we're going to solve it. We won't solve it just with the government putting in place policies about ageism. And we won't solve it by somebody getting up there and saying, we shall not be ageist, you know, <laughs> pronouncement yeah. from, the, from the top of the mount. We actually have to solve it helping one person at a time. And that person can then go and help somebody else. It'll be a groundswell, I think, is to say... Once one person or a dozen or a hundred or a thousand has helped, it will start to disappear of its own accord because there'll be a new pathway, I suppose. And to a certain extent, you and I are on the what is lovingly called the bleeding edge of this. We're the first generation to come to this point where there's so much ageism and there's so many of us coming through from that Gen X and baby boomer age group. It's to a certain extent we're going to wear the major issue and the next generation hopefully will benefit from our our pain (laughs) (laughs) well it's funny because i first met you maybe 20 or 30 years ago but as long as i've known you you've always looked the same because you went for the close crop bald look dare i say earlier it's like you haven't aged (laughs) you're the perfect spokesperson for this you're absolutely timeless oh well thank you i appreciate it (laughs) (laughs) whereas me i've like gone from brunette to silver Hopefully, and wise, like within five years. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Hey, look, small business has been absolutely smashed over the last year or two with the pandemic. It seems like the rich have just got mega, mega rich, handful of people, you know, beyond rich and middle class, small businesses absolutely smashed. It's a definitely a daunting time to start up a business and I think a lot of people's resources will be depleted on you know the other end of this year or two how the hell do you start a new business when you're already so far behind the eight ball yeah look at for me it's a bit of old school it's about connecting with people and all business is based on people there's somebody who has something to offer there's somebody who needs that to solve a problem that they have and so Look, there's things we can't control. We can't control when the government calls a lockdown and if we run a cafe and it gets shut. You know, I get that and it it is painful. But businesses can still be started and can still be successful. And and the success comes from really, if you're the person who wants to start a business, you need to know what you've got to offer. You need to know who needs that. And then you need to connect in a meaningful human way with those individuals to find out exactly how that transaction can occur and if you keep it real and also keep it small don't buy into this whole thing of saying you can have a global business these days you know from anywhere in your lounge room that that that's fine but not all businesses operate like that but what all businesses do operate on is this connection to people so even if it's in your own suburb or your own street or your own strip shopping center you can find people that are going to need what you have, whether you're somebody with some accounting background or somebody with some mowing lawns background or somebody with some production of ads background. You know, all of us have certain skills. We've just got to find some people that will purchase that. And of course, there's some work involved in that. I'm not a, a fan of saying that things are easy because actually business is not easy. It takes work. Um, you're not going to make a million dollars in one day or one year. But if you follow that concept of talking to people who might need your product, seeing what they need and want, and then finding what the value of that is, then you can build a business. And you can keep it as simple as that, one person at a time, and all of a sudden you've got a dozen. 
you know, or you've got 20 or you've got 30. And that's how really good businesses are built, irrespective of social media or online or Google or websites or whatever. It still comes down to two people connecting, one who's got something that needs, needs to be sold and somebody who wants to buy. Yeah, I like that because it becomes incredibly confusing, doesn't it? There's so many conflicting datums and you really just got to grab one of them and start, don't you? And go, okay, pin that down. Here's that. This person wants that. I can do this and just go from there. Yeah, yeah. If you were, you know, for younger people, we've talked about ageism and older people, for younger people coming out of school, contemplating university, working, apprenticeships, whatever... I've mentioned this a few times on the blank canvas. It seems that most of the guests, probably you know, two out of three, um, didn't go to uni, left school early, just started working, built a work ethic, and off they went. You went to college and and did science. What's your thoughts on which is the best route? <laughs> it's a good question, isn't it? There's been a lot of people that have been successful without a university degree. Um, yeah. My work life has mostly been about something that's nothing to do with my university degree. So I've kind of got a foot in both camps. You know, I could go back and probably be a scientist tomorrow if I did a bit more, you know, refreshing of my study and stuff. But my yeah. passion's in business. So for me, it always still comes back to that theme that we talked about actually earlier for young people or old people, it doesn't matter, is that if you are able to find something that you do well, that has a value connected to it, not necessarily a dollar value, but somebody needs what you have, then you can build a life and a career around that skill and that passion. And they're really the only two things you need is you need a passion for something and then you need to be bloody good at it. Case in point with what you do. I mean, I had an opportunity to, before we spoke today, I again looked at some of the ads you've created and man, you know, you've got such a great eye and the way you direct commercials. So you've got a skill and you obviously love doing it. And that's the same for anyone in the world. As, as long as they focus on those two things, try not to do something you don't like doing because if you have a, a bad day, you're going to give up. But if you love doing it, the odd bad day every now and again is not going to stop you from pursuing that passion. But you've also got to be good at it because there is a lot of competition in the world and if you're the best at something, you will always have a job or you'll always have a way of earning income. But if you're sort of middle of the road and you're just like everyone else, then you're just going to fall into competing with everyone else. Yeah, good advice, mate. And on the keynote speaking, I know you've done a lot of that. Is that something that's completely dried up of late or are you sort of managing to still do some um, virtual speaking work? Yeah, a bit of virtual stuff. I've only done one face-to-face in the last 18 months or so, which is... Um, you know, consequence wow. of not having people being put in rooms around the place. But um, I've done a number of webinars. But what I tend to do when things dry up, I just go, right, what else can I do? Because <laughs> I'm not going to sit around and mope. I'll write another book. So I've started another book two weeks ago. So Tell us about the, uh, the forthcoming book. Fantastic. So um, it's called Maturity Blues. Um, but <laughs> those that will remember the old, the film from the 70s, Puberty Blues. Oh, God. Look, you know what? The bloody movie poster behind me there is for a movie I made, Dust Off the Wings. Dust Off and the that Wings. Was, some, of the, some reviews called that Puberty Blues for the 90s. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah. So, so um, I love that title, mate. Yeah. Look, and it's the same generation, actually. It's the generation that had the Puberty Blues in the 70s and 80s has now got the Maturity Blues. So... Uh, it's just a broader look at this whole idea of ageism and really saying, well, okay, what does a world look like when we've actually embraced this idea that we are going to be more mature as a workforce? So we're going to have more people that are mature working. 
We're going to have more people that are mature running their own businesses. We're going to have more people that are mature productively engaging with the economy. What does that world look like? And so the book is about, okay, well, how do we get there? As opposed to just abolishing ageism, there's a whole bunch of other things we're going to have to do. Um, so it's a bit, bit, bit more of a broader action plan, I suppose, for government organisations and individuals. And I'm having a blast already. I'm about 10,000 words in and, and I can see it sort of shaping up. It's, it's really cool. Wow, fantastic. With the whole pandemic thing, do you think it will ever get back to kind of a normal or how it was before? Or do you think now that the governments have, you know, and various others have had a taste of the kind of control they've had of late, do you think they're going to, you know, wheel this out regularly? Well, I hope not. Um, but I think if they can get some control of the health side of things, I'm hoping that we don't start to see governments saying, well, OK, we'll get somebody has a sniffle and suddenly we shut the place down again. I do think as individuals, we're going to have to be more flexible and agile in the way we work and live. This hasn't happened in 100 years. You know, it happened back in 1920 where there was all this issue with, with a health issue that affected the whole planet. So I think as individuals, we always need to be preparing for those things. While not dwelling on them, we need to think, well, okay, things are going to be a little different. So I tend to not worry too much about what the government's going to do at any one time. If we voted them in, they're in charge, let them do what they need to do. But I'm not going to stop doing what I do just because somebody's told me to stay at home for the day or a week or two or half a year. <laughs> you got you got to keep a smile on your face because if you don't laugh, you cry, right? Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, I don't think you're the kind of guy that just sits at home and binges Netflix sort of day and night, seven days a week, are you? No, I couldn't. I can watch a couple of movies, but I don't think I could do it for a week. <laughs> i got too much to do. Uh, that's right. So I'm sure a lot of your clients have CBD offices and that kind of thing. What are you recommending to them? Like get the hell out of the CBD because these things could happen at any time and those overheads are just killing you or gives an example of how you've helped someone in that kind of predicament. Yeah, look, um, we've helped a number of clients in the marketing business and also people starting businesses think about what the world looks like and how to operate. And whilst I haven't specifically said to a client, get out of the CBD, a number of clients have said that to me. You know, they've said, we are no longer going to have big offices. We're going to have smaller offices. We're going to allow people to work from home if they want or come into the office at certain times. They're certainly going to reduce their footprint in what we call fixed costs in a business. So the stuff that has to go out, not the variable stuff that you can spend money if you choose or not. And rent and even workforces actually getting back to it. There's a lot of companies now thinking, you know, we would rather have our workforce available when we need them on a project basis than we would to have them as an employee. So that was one of the things I actually covered in the, one of the books is that 80% of organisations in the US, for example, think that their workforce is going to be more freelance in the future. So I think we're all going to have to get used to this idea that we're probably going to be working project by project. You know, we need you for a week. Great, I'll take it. And then yeah. create the next one. Um, so I think the world... The world of the big city where five million people go in and out every day, that might have gone forever. I, it may recover to a certain extent, but I don't think we should be holding on to the, the idea yeah. that these cities are going to be the place. And I, there's a bunch of people moving to regional Australia, and Australia is one of the best countries in the world for this. If you've got yeah. a reasonable internet connection, you can live anywhere. And you don't have a $2 million mortgage living in the middle of the city. So you can go and buy a $300,000 house in, I don't know, Bathurst yeah. or Orange, maybe there's 600 in Bathurst or Orange now, I don't know, but you know, they're cheaper. Yeah. 
so you don't have to earn as much money and you can have a much better lifestyle and be a bit more enjoyable time with the family so yeah absolutely mate yeah thank you tell me about recruiters because i know we've been talking about ageism often recruiters are the you know the gatekeepers to the jobs and is the person too old too young whatever tell me about that world i'm sure you encounter it a lot and um you know, without giving them hard and fast rules, how you encourage them not to be ageist and um, employ mature age people like ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny. A few years ago when I started this whole crazy adventure, I was really bashing the recruiters quite hard because I could talk to the mature age person and, and they'd say, I've sent off 300 resumes and applications for jobs and I haven't even had one call from somebody to say, I got it. And if I did get to a stage of an interview, I'd walk into the interview room and I'd see somebody go ashen face that I was, you know, mature age. You know, and there's people saying to these mature age people, leave your birth date off your resume. And I'm just going, well, that's just stupid because at some point you're going to turn up and they're going to know who you are. Unless you can use deep fake technology on your Zoom or something. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Um, So... The thing that I'm seeing is that there are some recruitment firms popping up now going, hey, we've got to change the dynamic. So there's there's one in Queensland that I've been talking to and they, they're focusing on this idea that we've got a whole bunch of mature age people who are going to be a lot of value. Let's put them in one location. Then all the companies that are age friendly can come yep. to us and we will give them really highly valuable, well-experienced mature age people. But I I do worry about some of the broad recruitment industry who are briefed by the client, by the way, (laughs) to get somebody. So whilst the conversations won't be written down, I know there will be conversations about saying we want a young and energetic culture because they're written into a lot of the job ads. And there's probably a come to Jesus moment where somebody's going to get hauled up in front of the courts for being ageist and they're going to be slapped with a half billion dollar fine and then that'll, that'll end the practice for everyone because they'll all like under quoting with real estate agents you slap a few of them around a bit and then it'll stop (laughs) yeah it's look it's it's gonna have to because if we've got a population that's older on average then more of the people coming through their front doors are going to be more mature and i'm not for mature and against young i'm like don't be ageist to anyone don't be ageist to a young person because they haven't got an experience you know give them a crack (laughs) yeah that makes total sense Mate, you've done like 700 keynote speeches and seminars. Like, that must have been a huge part of your business. When COVID hit, did you go shit? And that's when you wrote the next book? Or what What did you do? You've obviously been through some tough times of late. Give us an example of uh, some of the barriers you've had to overcome. You make it look really easy because, you know, I see you peripherally and I'm like, God, that guy's just a machine. He's just always firing. But um, <laughs> I'm sure we all have our, have our moments. Give us an insight into how you've uh, grappled with the last year. Yeah, look, it's probably not. I've been running a business for 20 years now, and I've been through several phases where I've hit the wall, you know, at probably 20 or 30 miles an hour. And, you know, I call it a blood nose. You know, you're running a business, you run into something you can't handle, and it's like, holy hell, that's, you know, sleepless nights, waking up wondering whether we're going to make you know the revenue to be able to pay our staff you know it it can be shit at times excuse the expression (laughs) look it's just a case of saying i can't do that now so what can i do and and i just take that approach now it doesn't mean i don't get concerned about it or upset or stressed or sit there and worry about it but i i kind of worked out my own methodology which is i just pull out a, a blank piece of paper and i start writing what can i do 
what can be done to change this. So actually when the pandemic start, normally if I'm writing a book, it's a six month process. I write, I get an editor, I refine, I refine, I refine, I do the jacket of it, the design, and then I publish it. So the last book I did in eight weeks, probably gives you a bit of an example of what I try and do is to say, how can I speed up, do things faster, do things differently? When the pandemic start, I rang every single one of my clients and just said, how can I help? I know that some of them are gonna potentially stop working with us, but I take the long-term view, well, how can I help each one of them? And whilst we changed some of our agreements with clients, we didn't lose one client in that whole process because it was really a case of what can I do for you? Don't worry about the money because you've been good to me. You've been looked after me. How can I help you? And they all appreciated that. And most of them then just kept us going. And of course, I haven't been able to go out and do keynotes, but it's part of my business. It's not a whole massive chunk of my business. The other policy I have is don't have too much of your eggs in one basket (laughs) because if something like this happens, you've got to have backup plan A, B, C, D, F. (laughs) Absolutely. Something else I've noticed about you is that you're really strong on surveying with your marketing business. You don't just sort of lunge in without really surveying what are the buttons for that particular business and what are the problems people are having? What does the audience need? Who's the demographic? All the rest of it. I guess showing you science background, as you touched on earlier, you really go in and do your research before you come to your conclusions. Yeah, look, I, I hate assumptions. I, I've sat in too many boardrooms and heard people expressing what they think actually is happening in the world or what they think what's happening with their customers. And I've been proven wrong so many times over the years that I, I kind of finally got the message. <laughs> you know, don't take the assumption. Just let's just find out. Talk to a few customers. Let's talk to a few staff. Let's talk to a few people in the street and just find out. And you, you only have to survey 30, 40 or 50 people and in, in a particular demographic and you can pretty much find out what's really going on. And then that just gives you much more knowledge and understanding of the world. You're not out there with your sort of blindfold and tapping yes. around in the dark trying to find what's going on. It doesn't mean you can't take risks and have a crack at doing something different, but it, it just gives you a bit of knowledge and a bit of understanding. And I always find that knowledge and understanding are a better place to start from than mystery. No, that, that makes total sense. Mate, so if people want to use your marketing services, is that Blue Frog Marketing and then the other business coaching, that's through Silver and Wise, is that right? That's right, yep. Yep. That's right. Okay, yep. gotcha. Yep. Mate, bloody fantastic. Well, look, it's been great to have a yak today. I'm on day two of a 14-day home quarantine. So, you know, I've just arrived into this and thought, oh, my God, here we go again. All right, well, suddenly I've, I've got some time at home, so crank up the podcast. So thank you. You've managed to keep me busy for day – yeah, this is day two. So I appreciate you <laughs> – making yourself available oh you're most welcome mate and it's nice to have a bit of a laugh too because that'll be what gets you through the others (laughs) so call anytime i'm available (laughs) no it's a total trip well mate thanks for the inspiration and honestly um thanks again for that book and that coffee a couple of years ago because you put me in a good frame of mind for when this um you know covid hit and um i don't know i hit the ground running (laughs) fantastic mate i'm so i'm so happy for you and well done on all you've created with it it's um It's an amazing piece of work, so well done. Okay, thanks, mate. Cheers. I'm Lee Rogers, and you've been listening to my conversation with Hunter Leonard. To find out more about Hunter, his books, and the great work he does, 
head to silverandwise.com.au or you can find him on LinkedIn. If you like what you've heard, please give us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and share the blank canvas with a friend. Until next week, live large. The Blank Canvas is produced by Lee Rogers and me, Rin MacDonald, with audio support by Jason Murphy at Gas Inc. and music by Rodrigo Bustos. This has been a Milovich production.